The scripture this morning is from Acts 4, 32 through 35. The community of believers was one in heart and mind. None of them would say, this is mine, about any of their possessions, but held everything in common. The apostles continued to bear powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and an abundance of grace was at work among them all. There was no needy persons among them. Those who owned properties or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds from the sales, and place them in care and under the authority of the apostles. Then it was distributed to anyone who was in need. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, I'd also invite you this morning to turn to the gospel text, which is John chapter 20. The text picks up where we left off last week on the first Sunday of Easter in John chapter 20. Today, we begin at the 19th verse. And if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. It was still the first day of the week that evening while the disciples were being behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. And Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied, do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in the scroll, but these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. During these uh, next six or seven Sundays of this Easter season, uh, we will be looking together at the Acts text with the Gospel text. Um, for a few months, we've actually been putting the Old Testament reading for today with the Gospel readings. During the Easter season, the lectionary does kind of an interesting thing. Rather than continuing to go with Old Testament texts and hear those great words about how God's presence was active in, um, amidst the people of Israel and forming this new creation community, if you will. Now the text moves during this Easter season to the story of Acts so that we can now see in light of the resurrected Lord how the Spirit again is still at work forming a people, a new Israel, to be a new creation community in the world empowered by His Spirit. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be thinking about the Acts text with the Gospel text together. 
If you have your Bible, I would invite you to put something in John chapter 20 and go back with me to Acts, the fourth chapter. The text that we heard read for us today from the book of Acts is, um, comes at the end of an interesting event. Peter and John have been preaching and they get themselves in trouble. Um, they almost get persecuted and God moves. In fact, the earth quakes and they are delivered and the community gathers together to be grateful for the way that God has moved and acted and protected. And it's in the midst of that then that Luke in Acts describes for us the kind of community that is being formed. This beautiful picture, is we get this a couple of times in Acts, this beautiful picture of a community that the boundaries are being broken down. People are learning to live and love and be family together. And there is sharing and there is blessing and there's no neediness among the people because there's a new kind of life being formed in their midst. I love those descriptions that Luke gives us. I, every time I'm at them, though, I, I want to be a little careful that we don't idealize too much those particular texts. For if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that the text kind of cut off right before a couple of verses where Luke goes on to describe, there's a guy named Barnabas who joined the Christian community and he sold this piece of property and he brought it to the life of the apostles and he's such an encourager. In fact, let's just call him Barnabas, the son of encouragement, right? Let's just, he encourages. But then if you keep reading, then you get Acts chapter five and Ananias and Sapphira just dropped dead. Um, <laughs> they don't participate in it. And there's a kind of brokenness. In fact, a kind of deathliness that is part of the community. But the description of the community in Acts is not only beautiful, but it has a strong resonance with the hopes that God has had for his people all along. In fact, if you have, again, Acts 4 open, notice verse 34. You may want to underline it. It says this, there were no needy persons among them. Many commentators and biblical scholars point out that it's interesting that if you go all the way back to the center of the Torah, to Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter, the fourth verse, in the midst of all of these laws, in the midst of Torah that is shaping this vision for this people that God has brought out of exile, and now they're in the wilderness being formed to be light to the nations, as God is forming those people in the midst of conversations about Sabbath keeping and the ways in which their life will be formed, here is what... Deuteronomy 15, verse 4 says, Of course, there won't be any needy or poor persons among you because the Lord will bless you. So many scholars point out that what Luke is narrating in Acts chapter 4 is actually the fulfillment of what God has been hoping and trying to form all along, way back when he brought the people out of Exodus, a people who will live a kind of life that will be a light to the nations, that will be a reflection of something new that is breaking out in, in our midst. So over these next few weeks, I'm going to use a phrase, and I, I want to talk about it a little bit this morning because I'm going to use it quite often. The phrase is this, form of life. Form of life. That what Luke is describing in these important passages and acts is the form of life that is beginning to be developed in the life of the early church together. Form of life is a kind of phrase that sociologists use to describe the ways in which we sort of learn to interact with each other. So, for example, this week, while I was thinking about this text, I was sitting in my office at home, 
And I've moved my desk now, so I look out. My home office is in the front of the house and looks out towards the street. And I had the blinds open. And I was trying to think about, how do I describe what form of life is? And while I was sitting there, it was a, it was a beautiful but windy day outside. And I saw people out, you know, the sprinkler systems just turned on, so people out working in their yards. Um, in our neighborhood, we, we were the, I think, third house on our street, and now the whole block, I think there's one or two empty lots left, but everything else has been built up. And I was thinking about how all of our houses are different, but kind of the same. Only some of them have RV garages, which I'm still trying to figure, I, I get it, right? Like there's a form of life here where people own big things to go out and camp in the woods, and you need a garage for that, right? And there's a kind of form of life. We all have kind of two, three-car garages because that's the kind of form that we have begun to live into. I saw people walking their dogs. Almost everybody in my neighborhood has a dog because they are the best animals. Um, but we've been shaped in certain kinds of ways that way. I saw people running and jogging and exercising, biking. There's people in our neighborhood with flagpoles and things kind of flying out in front of their house. Or, like there's all these ways that shape a particular kind of form of life that we are familiar with. And it's shaped in all sorts of ways. It's shaped in conversations as neighbors. It's shaped in television. It's shaped in our reading. It's shaped in the media. Like all of these kinds of things inform a particular way that we live together as neighbors up on the ridge. What Luke is describing is a particular form of life that the early church began to live into, a unique form of life, a form of life unique to God's people. But here's the question. How did that form of life come to be? What is the source of that form of life for the early church? And this morning, I want to answer that question by saying the form of life that we see emerging in Acts as the life of the early church emerges out of their worship. That it is their worship together, their gathering together that begins to inform this kind of life that they begin to live out together. So now, go back with me to John chapter 20. So John chapter 20, if you're paying attention in the reading of the text, it's kind of fascinating because it ends in this kind of way. Um, if you have an open look at the last few verses. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in the scroll. But these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. If you're paying attention to those words, it sounds like that is where the gospel should end. The next thing should be, sincerely, all my love, John the Beloved. And most New Testament scholars think that's probably where the original gospel ended. And that just a few years later, chapter 21, this unique story about Jesus having breakfast with the disciples and having a conversation with Peter and John about their different destinies as apostles, that that 21st chapter got added a little bit later. And so what we have, if you're with me, what we have at the end of chapter 20 are these two stories, one about the disciples gathering together and Jesus showing up in their midst, and another one about Thomas and his struggles in faith. And this is the way John essentially is going to conclude the gospel. And the ways in which he concludes them are actually these two descriptions of gatherings of Christians that many scholars think is this. It is a way of saying, as we get to the end of the Gospel of John and we ask this question, what are we supposed to do that these two stories form, and I'm going to use a big word here, they are paradigmatic. They form paradigms for what are we supposed to do now. 
And the answer to that question is this, we're supposed to worship. So I said to you a few weeks ago, the Gospel of John is unique because it's a worship gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptics, and they have a tendency to tell the story of Jesus in some ways to people who may have never experienced Jesus, knew Jesus, and they're introducing the whole life of Jesus to them for the first time. John, on the other hand, tends to be a gospel that is shaped as though we kind of believe, but John wants us to enter deeper and deeper into belief, and so the gospel is sort of set up as a gospel for us to use in worship. So I gave the example that the, the gospel opens with a whole series of metaphors, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then Jesus goes to a wedding and turns water into wine. And then he has this conversation about tearing down the temple, and then he has a conversation with Nicodemus about being born again, and then he has a conversation with the woman at the well about living water, and then he has a conversation with the disciples about bread. And each time, those conversations are sort of shaped around dumb questions, like, you didn't bring a bucket, how can you get water? Or I have to go back to my mother's womb? Ick! And they're it took us generations to build this temple. You'll tear it down in three days. But each of those scenarios, we as the church, we're gathered around that text. Pastor Ryan leads us to some cool songs about being the new wine or being the new temple or being the new birth or being the living water. And we are then to worship and to, be, to celebrate that. And then after we've gone through all of those, we can come back and do all the I am texts. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gatekeeper. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we can have gathering after gathering, week after week, we are shaped by those I am statements. Or we can gather around all of the signs that, that John puts in his gospel. And so all that to say, it shouldn't surprise us that we get now to the end of the gospel and we encounter essentially two worship services. So if you have your Bible still open, look at the first one. At verse 19, the text opens with a reminder that it is still the first day of the week. The day that early on began to emerge as the time set aside for Christians to worship. As I said last week, we gather on the first day of the week because Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. That a people who have kept Sabbath as Holy Saturday for so long still try to find what it means to have a Sabbath rhythm and a connectedness to God relationally and have a kind of life that doesn't make work the end of our lives. But we as Christians for 2,000 years have gathered on the first day of the week because that is the day that all things have been made new and that Christ has risen from the dead. And so John says to us, hang on, the first day isn't over. The disciples gathered together on the first day of the week. And secondly, the church or the ecclesia, these people called out, are called out and they're separated. And in this case, they're behind closed doors. They're separated in a unique place where the church is gathered together. And in the first century especially, there is a threat outside. And so this gathering makes them unique and in some ways threatened, different resident aliens. Third, in their gathering, Christ shows up. The presence of Christ is revealed and the peace of Christ is extended. By the way, it is why, if you haven't figured it out yet, is why each week we start our worship with first with a call to worship. To say, yo, hey, ha, come on. Respond to this. Hear the voice of God calling us out to gather together. And where two or three are gathered in, in his midst, he shows up in the midst of us, right? 
Christ is present with us. And I get this question every once in a while from folks. I know that we haven't been able to do this in a while. We now, you know, we're starting to be able to elbow bump each other and fist bump each other a little bit. But back kind of pre-COVID, when we say, now stand, greet somebody, say, I've often asked the question, why do you have to say, extend the peace of Christ to somebody? Why can't you just say, go slobber on somebody? Go hug somebody. The reason we use the language of passing the peace is because of these kinds of texts where Christ shows up and speaks peace to them. And so now we get the chance not just to hug each other or shake each other's hands or greet each other. We are enabled to be an extension of the peace of Christ to someone else and to pass that peace to each other. And when Christ shows up in their midst, they get to hear from him and touch him, be edified, filled with joy, the text says, in their experience of the present Christ. So as I love to quote Brent's book on worship so often, I love the image that he uses in that book that, that is so God breathes in and draws us close to God's self. And as we do that, the presence of Christ is manifest in our midst and we bring what we have, praises and needs and gifts, but Christ brings all that Christ is. And we receive and are edified and we're filled with joy as God breathes in and draws us close. But then notice what happens next in the text. They are blessed. And again, they are breathed on. This is John's version of Pentecost, by the way where Jesus breathes on the disciples and the Spirit empowers them and then sends them out into the mission of reconciliation and forgiveness in the world. So if you're with me, that whole story is about the breathing in of God, the presence of Christ in our midst, the extension of peace, the edification, the joy, the receiving, the giving, and now the breathing out and the empowerment to go and to be the people of God in mission to the world. Are you with me? So all of the primary pieces of early Christian worship are there in just a few verses. Gathering, passing the peace, presence of Christ, edification, empowerment, sending. Only Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed out on that first gathering. And so Thomas serves as a kind of foil for those of us who struggle to believe. If we had a lot of time today, we could walk through each of the different characters in John chapter 20 and the uniqueness of all of their journeys to faith. I mean, just briefly, if you remember last week, Mary Magdalene shows up at the tomb. There's no body there. She goes to tell the disciples. And then we have that great moment where Peter and John race each other to the tomb and John wins because he's younger and cooler. But Peter goes in first because he's brash. He goes into the tomb and then it says, but the the disciple Jesus loved, the beloved one, enters the tomb, and he, he believes. Fascinating. All it took for John was the tomb to be empty for him to believe. Mary Magdalene hears the voice of Jesus, and it's hearing the voice of Jesus that is the source and beginning of her ability to begin to believe. But in the text in front of us, the disciples they believe because Jesus shows up in their midst and speaks peace, and they experience the risen Christ. And so sometimes I think Thomas gets a bad rap here. Poor Thomas, who comes to history as the doubter. 
He just needs to experience what the majority of those disciples had already experienced, which is to be able to feel, to touch, to experience the reality of Christ, to know that Christ has been risen because he is able to touch the wounded, broken, and yet living again body of Christ. Again, I think this is a paradigm for us. John says eight days later, which probably doesn't mean a week from Monday, but it means, as we said last week, a week later on the eighth day. On the first day of that new creation, the church is again beginning to participate in that gathering together, that remembrance of that first day of the week. And what happens? Christ shows up in their midst, speaks peace, is present. And Thomas now gets to experience for himself the reality of the living Christ. And Thomas not only touches, but he enters in by faith and proclaims what John has been trying to tell us from the very first verse of the gospel. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. Thomas joins this form of life, this people made possible only through worship. And so if you're with me, this... I think that this paradigm then says to us, what are we supposed to do? And the answer is what we're doing right now. Gathering together. Experiencing the reality of the presence of Christ in our midst. Experiencing his peace, bringing what we have. Being edified and filled with joy because of Christ's presence being breathed upon and sent out into mission in the world. that this text is inviting us to embody the form of life that we begin to see in Acts. I think I've shared this story with you, um, but I only have six stories and they just get rotated around. Um, One of my favorite moments in ministry happened about 20 years ago now. so when Dev and I and the kids were, who were real little, we moved, to, um, we moved to Richardson, Texas from SNU. It was my first senior pastorate, and we moved into this neighborhood uh, that was kind of developing a new neighborhood, um, and we moved on to a cul-de-sac, and we got to know the family right down, just three or four houses down at the end of the cul-de-sac, and we got to know them in part because they had three kids almost identical with our kids' age. And so it was great. They connected quickly and were playing roller hockey down at the end of the, the cul-de-sac. And um, we lived in this little town next to Richardson, a town called Saxe, Texas, which we love we loved that name because um, we always wanted to say we're too Saxe for this town. Um, but um, you'll get to ask a millennial. Um, but we, uh, we lived in Saxe and we... We spent a lot of Saturdays at the baseball fields, right, um, watching really bad Little League baseball together, right, and experiencing that with our kids and delighting. And, and um, I just discovered recently shooting a lot of videotape of bad Little League baseball. But, um, but we got to know Scott and Tina, uh, this couple down the street. Scott had a little bit of a church memory. I don't think Tina really had much church memory at all or any experience 
But it didn't take very long of friendship and relationship, vacation Bible schools, kids get involved in church, um, Debbie and Tina taking long walks together with their two little infant girls. It didn't take very long for them to lean in and, and to lean into faith and begin to participate in the church. A few months later, um, about 11 o'clock at night one night, uh, the phone rings and, and I pick it up and it's Tina. And she says, Scott, um, I'm at the hospital and I'm with this couple that also lives in our subdivision. Um, their names are Scott and Stephanie. Now, I need to say not, you didn't have to be named Scott to live in our subdivision, but there apparently were a few of us. Um, but Scott and Stephanie just had a premature baby named Savannah. And I came to visit them. Savannah weighs just a little over a pound. And the doctors, while I was here, the doctors came in and said to them, we don't think Savannah's going to live through the night, um, as is the case with many premature babies. She has proteins in her blood that are beginning to attach to her organs and are beginning to shut down her organs, and, and we don't think she will live through the night. And so if you have family that you want to call to come, this would be the time to call them. And this was Texas, and so they said, and if you have a pastor, you might want to call the pastor. Stephanie, with tears running down her cheeks, said, I don't have a pastor. And Tina said, I got one. And so she went out in the hallway. And so she said, Scott, is there any chance that you and Deb could come um, and pray with them? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Let us call some friends to come and, you know, kind of sit with the kids and we'll get dressed and we'll, we'll come to the hospital. Um, and as I'm getting ready to hang up, Tina says, yeah, and bring that oil stuff. And I said, okay, I'll grab the oil. So we head down to the hospital, and I have to say, I am not the hero in this story by any means. I have to tell you how much fear I had. Brand new pastor, hadn't been at this very long. Recognizing my inadequacies in walking into that hospital room with very few answers for them. A sense of my own sort of lack of faith that said, I'm going to come and pray with them and Savannah's going to die, and then we're going to walk through the grief process with this family that I don't know, right? And so all these thoughts are kind of swirling through my head when I walk into that hospital room. But one of my most vivid pastoral memories is holding Savannah and praying for her. Um, here's this little one who weighed a pound and is fitting in the palm of my hand. And I remember praying, oh God, um, you know Scott and Stephanie, and you know Savannah, and you love them. And, and God, we believe that you're present, and, and we entrust this little one in the same way that I am holding her in my hand. We, we offer her to your hands, and, and we're not telling you what to do, God, but we're asking that you would move in ways that we can see, and we entrust her to you, and we entrust Scott and Stephanie to you, and we just ask that you would move, right? We'd ask, and I anoint this little one in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we prayed and cried with them a little bit, and we went home. Eight o'clock in the morning, phone rings. Scott, this is Stephanie. Savannah made it through the night. Any chance you could come by the hospital today? I said, sure, sure, we'd love to. Bring that oil stuff. Okay. Showed up in the hospital, did the same routine, prayed for it. Next day, 8 o'clock in the morning, phone rings. Scott, Stephanie, Savannah made it through the night. Any chance you could come by, bring that oil stuff with you. That routine went on for a few days as Savannah just kind of kept making it through the night. And finally I said, you know, I'm not the only person who knows how to pray in our community. <laughs> There's some other folks. Would it be okay with you if 
we got some great prayers, and that church has some great prayers. We've got some great prayers who would love to come and pray with you. Man, they came and prayed. Pray with them, love them. There were weeks and months in the NICU for Savannah ahead. The crazy God, I mean, started to move in ways that they could see, especially in the life of Savannah, and she kept getting better. And it didn't take very long for us to realize, oh, they have another daughter who now needs rights to school. So some folks from the church became the sort of morning crew to take their daughter to school. We called the casserole patrol. They got on the deal, right? Tater tot casseroles from every corner of the Dallas Metroplex started showing up to Saxe. Freezers full of bad food. Um, But this community, this people who live a form of life by prayer and concern and care, all of a sudden begin to move in in their life and become a source of support and care. And you know where this story is going because I wouldn't tell it if it didn't go there. At some point, in the midst of God moving in a community caring, Scott and Stephanie said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. One of our last Sundays was, was Baby Sunday at Richardson, which <laughs> this is the Sunday where everybody who's had a baby that year, we have a parade, have prayed with them which I know I have some friends from Texas watching today, but I have to say, that is so Texas. Uh, <laughs> and they did it well. They did it right. I had some friends, she's a flight attendant. When they had a baby, they, they made a plane and they flew her in. Not, not actually, but you know, they carried this plane. But just, all, just went all out on Baby Sunday. I will never forget Savannah in a little red wagon being pulled down the aisle of that church. The church standing and erupting in tears and applause for all that God had done and was doing in their life, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Why did Scott and Stephanie come to faith? Because one day at the right moment, I pulled them out in the hallway and said, have you heard the four spiritual laws? Can I argue you into this? They came to trust and faith because they experienced a people living a form of life shaped out of their worship of the one true Lord of all creation. And like Thomas, they were able to touch that, see that, experience that, know that, be filled with joy because of that, and pronounce, my Lord and my God, because they had experienced that. So worship that informs a form of life and a form of life that emerges from our worship is a source of faith as people are able to touch, again, not the perfect, the wounded and broken body of Christ, but a body that is transformed and being transformed by the Spirit of God. And so, sisters and brothers, we are witnesses. Our worship, the witness of Scripture, the power of the Spirit, creates in the church a particular form of life. And without that particular form of life, our worship, the witness of Scripture, and even the power of the Spirit are empty activities with no power to lead others to have faith in Christ and to join in the life of the new creation. So our worship must always be connected to a particular form of life. And so in these last few minutes, if I could just reflect with you personally, just two or three things. We would love in this season, um, 
And as we look at these acts and gospel texts together, we're, we're calling this, we are witnesses. Um, we would love for some of you to share with us and with the community the ways that God has been moving in your life. We need the testimony and story of each other, the witness of each other, to continue to grow in faith. And in this day where we have so many friends connected online with us today and so many people who are encountering this community in all of the different manifestations across the valley, we need a collection of stories of people saying, Christ has made a difference for me and is making a difference for me. And again, it doesn't mean I'm living this perfectly. In fact, here are my scars. Here are the wounds. But the wounds that have not had the last word. And the wounds that God has redeemed for his purpose. And so we'd love for you. And and if if you feel the Lord leading you to do that, we'd love to tape you. We'd love to, to be able to share that with others. And so if you'd connect with Ashley or me or one of the other staff, we we would love to be able to tell that story. But I'd also want to say, we need to think seriously about what is the form of life that is emerging out of our worship. Um... For many of us, the form of life that is, is emerging is, it's not that it's bad. We're nice people, most, more often than not. We're nice. We're good citizens. We can be good neighbors. But frankly, that is not a form of life that is dependent upon the power of the Spirit to form a community of difference. And so we have to wrestle with, what is the form of life that is, that is coming out of the worship of God, our connection to God? What is that form of life that as our children and grandchildren, our neighbors, our friends look on, what is the difference that they see in us and in this community and in the way this community extends itself into the life of others? What is that difference that people see that say, yes, that is the wounded but living body of Christ that I can touch and leads to faith and and leads to a confession of the reality of God's work in the world. And I want to say finally to a few Thomases who may be here or watching online, Or some Thomases who may encounter this in podcast form, I don't know, five years from now. And you encountered a people called church desperate to be able to touch the reality of the living Christ. And you encountered not Barnabas, but Ananias and Sapphira. people far more shaped by their fears and worries and other identities than by the reality of the living Christ. I am sorry. I 
I am sorry for the ways that I have been Ananias and Sapphira. And that too often I have led a people who look far more like Ananias and Sapphira than Barnabas. The fault is not in the one we worship. The fault is in our unwillingness to allow the breath of God to breathe a new form of life. I, I even want to say to some of you university students who are here, I, I pray this as I walk across campus, there are a whole lot of Thomases at the university who had, some who had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And they are desperate to discover the living, breathing reality of Christ. And so for those of you students who are here who, who believe this stuff, who lean into it, who, who want this to be a reality, think about what is the form of life that you and your friends can embody, that can be the living reality so that Thomas can touch and say, my Lord and my God. Again, it's not in our perfection. We are wounded. But for you, Thomas, is out there, hang with us. We're learning what it means to be shaped by a form of life that comes from a God who keeps calling us and drawing us and showing up in our midst and speaking peace into our lives and allowing us to be edified by Christ's presence and to be filled with joy and to be transformed and for the Spirit of God to breathe upon us and to be sent to be instruments of reconciliation in the world. We are still learning that. And so may God help us to not be a people of empty words and empty practices, but may God help us to live a form of life a form of life that is a witness to the reality of Christ in our midst. God, help us today. I pray that you would, um, that you would form us as a people of worship. Um, we keep gathering on this first day, this eighth day, this new day, because you keep calling us and you keep inviting us to be transformed and you keep showing up in our midst and you keep extending peace and you keep breathing your breath upon us and sending us into your world. We have much to learn and much to be shaped by and so we'll be back next week because you call us and you draw us and you breathe upon us and you send us. But I pray that we would move beyond just simply now the routine of that practice. But would a form of life empowered by the Spirit emerge out of our life together. Have mercy on us for all of our Ananias and Sapphira ways. And God, you know me. I... Um, I will pray a radical prayer 
if we cannot get out of our Ananias and Sapphira ways, would you just kill us? Maybe not physically, but would you, would you tear down the walls of false communities so that the Thomases who need a living reality will no longer be damaged or hurt or destroyed? May you allow the Barnabas that you see in us to begin to emerge. Give us life, a life that's from you. And may the Scott and the Stephanies and Savannahs and may the Thomases in the world, may they come to faith because they are able to see the reality of the living one, you in our midst. And so create that form of life in us, we pray. Breathe your spirit upon us. For we pray this in Jesus' name.